Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about other types of clutter. Relationship clutter, career clutter, emotional clutter, calendar clutter, organizational clutter, and we're going to answer a bunch of your rapid fire questions as well. Shout out to our live stream right now. Feel free to ask your questions and leave your comments. But before we get to all of that, oh, by the way, I've got some more paper clutter questions as well. If we have time, we may even get to a few of those. But before all of that, let's read some more about less. By the way, of course, Ryan Nicodemus is not here today. Unfortunately, he has a children's cold. And so um, we do have Jordan No More podcast, Sean, Danny Unknown, and Malabama in the studio, and they have access to microphones, so we'll try to include them at some point as so well. I, I do have to interrupt briefly and ask you, Josh, because you keep calling it a children's cold. Why do you refer to it as a children's cold? I've been dying <laughs> to yeah, know this is am, well. am I missing something with that? Mallory, what it's were you going to say? Cold, cold, uh, right? Well, no, it's, I, not, it's not serious. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I thought, just... I thought it was missing something here. Am I, what, <laughs> I thought it was a different strain of cold yeah. that I had just bypassed my That's entire life. That's what I was life. thinking. No, what, I mean, what am I missing? It, the, the COVID is also a cold. Like, I, yeah. I, I blew my mind when my doctor told me that one. He's like, yeah, it's the cold. It's just a much, 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 much more severe it's cold. It's a more virulent form of the cold, or the common cold. For some people, yeah. I, honestly, when I, when my, me and my whole family had COVID, like every cold I've ever had was worse than COVID for me. Thankfully, I got really, really mm. lucky. There are other people who get Same. it and they end up hospitalized, right? And so um, I think it, there's much more dramatic uh, effects of that. Some people barely know. In, in fact, a lot of people will, will catch the coronavirus and not even get COVID-19, the resulting disease mm. from right. SARS-CoV-2. Anyway, uh, this is not a, a coronavirus podcast, but um, yeah, I, I, say, I say children's cold and Jess said, hey, it's, it's not that serious, but we just don't I want him you. spreading his cold to everyone else who is pre here. Presupposes that uh, children aren't serious, so you don't take children, children serious? <laughs> it presupposes that Ryan is himself a child. Well, no, and, and oh, no. He is. <laughs> oh, my God. Poor, come on, the guy's not here to defend himself. Well, he, he'd Ryan. be the first person to tell you this. He, he's um, going to be in on the comments, <laughs> in the comments. <laughs> here in a second, I'm sure. <laughs> That'd be great if he's he did he did call me this morning and said tell everyone that I miss them and I love them and Aww. I'll be back yeah. soon. Let's move on to some more about less. We have uh, three articles today. The first one is from Joshua Becker, our good friend, who we just scheduled to be on the podcast in April when his new book is coming out. It's called Things That Matter. He is one of the, the people who introduced me and Ryan to minimalism more than a dozen years ago now. And uh, this is from his website, Becoming Minimalist. The title of the article is The Ultimate Guide to a No-Buy Year. It's easy to get caught up in a cycle of consumerism. By the way, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. It's easy to get caught up. In, it's easy to get caught up in the cycle of consumerism. Shopping and errands lead to more shopping and errands. Before you know it, your quest to live a more intentional life is drowned out by stuff. One possible solution is the no-buy year, also known as a no-spend year, a whole year dedicated to cutting out extraneous purchases in order to reset your spending habits. With the new year approaching, well, it's already the new year if you're listening to the recorded version of this. We're recording this right before the, the new year. But uh, if you're listening to this, you've already failed at all your New Year's resolutions. You're kicking yourself, but don't worry. We'll have, we actually have a question about New Year's resolutions here in a bit. 
And um, we can talk more about that. Anyway, return to text. Let me offer you the benefits of a no buy year, the challenge rule, the, the challenge rules and necessary preparation, plus eight examples of people who attempted a no spend year just to encourage you. The benefits of a no buy year limit purchases to save money. In fact, uh, I'm not going to read the whole article here. I'm going to let y'all take a, a look at this because I'm going to talk about I did this literally a decade ago. I guess it's 11 years ago now, but in 2011, shortly after, it was just a few weeks after we, we started The Minimalists. So we started The Minimalists December 14th of 2010. And I didn't have anything to write about because I'd written about, um, I hadn't left my job yet. And I'd written about, you know, simplifying. We wrote about Ryan's packing party and I had a few other essays up on the website. I'm like, I need something to write about. I need to do some sort of lifestyle experiment. Well, we're The Minimalists now. You know what I'm going to try? I'm going to just try to I guess not buy anything this year as a minimalist, that's going to be easy, right? So no new purchases at all other than consumables. So if you need shampoo or you need toothpaste or whatever, obviously any sort of consumables, food, et cetera, then um, those things are acceptable, but no new material goods. And that worked really well until I accidentally spilled tea on my laptop. And even then I was committed to the, tyranny of not buying anything. And I realized like, oh, I'm actually depriving myself. In fact, I spent a month or so. Well, I was just uh, going to Ryan's house or going to the library, trying to use their computer to write. I was writing on these, like I had some yellow legal pads that I already owned. And so I, I'm writing on those. And eventually I ran out of yellow legal pads. So I'm writing essays on napkins that I'd find in different places. And it became this moment of deprivation and it helped me actually better understand minimalism. Minimalism has nothing to do with deprivation. However, it can be useful. It can be beneficial to temporarily deprive ourselves, right? Ryan and I have that, the no junk rule. Everything you own can fit in one of three piles. It's either essential, non-essential, but value adding, or it's junk. Unfortunately, most of the things we own, most of the things I owned in my 20s, fit into that third category, although I pretended they were in those first two categories. Oh yeah, this is absolutely essential to me. Well, no, we need to be honest with ourselves. Most of the things we own are not essential at all. And that's okay. I'm not against non-essentials. But if you look at this studio, for example, we have quite a few non-essentials in this room. If you're watching the live stream, you can see the whole studio right now. But these paintings are non-essential. Although our friend Erwin McManus would disagree, he would say that beauty is essential. And I agree with that sentiment that beauty is useful, beneficial, necessary for living a meaningful life in many ways. But this particular painting isn't necessarily essential, right? I have water here. This is essential, right? Having the glass is probably essential, being able to drink out of something. So I'm not just drinking out of the faucet or whatever. But most of the things we own are non-essential, but they add value if you're a minimalist. If you're not a minimalist, then most of the things you own masquerade as value adding, but they're actually getting in the way of the things that add value. By temporarily depriving myself of my laptop and of new purchases, of clothing, etc., I did realize a few things. One is the things that I told myself were going to add value to my life, I didn't actually need. 
and it reprogrammed my consumerist twitch in a way. So this year, if you've already failed at your New Year's resolutions and you're looking for one that might open your eyes, if you're looking for one that it makes sense to fail at, consider buying nothing else this year. Consider you're going to fail at it probably. But learn from that failure. Learn from that reprogramming. Because anytime I would go to the store, say I went to Target to buy toothpaste and paper towels and shampoo, I would still walk by things like, oh, I should buy that. Wait, I can't buy it. Oh, I need to. Oh, wait, I can't buy that. And it reprogrammed that consumerist twitch that was so heavily programmed within me. I've got another article here. It's called can minimalism really make you happy? This is from Psychology Today. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. The subtitle of the article is New Research Praises the Psychology of the Minimalism Movement. And here are the key points from the article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. The first key point is the link between minimalism and psychological well-being may be that minimalists are better able to control their desires to consume. As you hear uh, next week, we uh, we already recorded this, but uh, we did an episode with uh, Peter Rollins, and we've done an episode with him in the past about desire. And I think one of the common misconceptions about minimalism or Buddhism or Christianity or any other movement that often encourages people to, well, as they say here, control their desires. It's not about eliminating our desires. We want desires. We desire our desires. Unfortunately, the problem is many of our desires are making us miserable. But if we can understand those desires better, then in a way they're saying control them. It's not really about controlling them. It's about understanding them. If you truly understand your desires, what motivates your desires? Are they mimetic desires, meaning your culture, your society, your religion, your peer group, your schoolmates are influencing your desires? then you can quite often walk away and say, oh, those desires that I thought I had, they're actually making me miserable. They're not even my desires in the first place. They're not innate desires. And they're not even desires I want to continue to hold on to. So I can let those go. How do I let them go? I, I simply stop clinging. The next key point in this article is minimalism may encourage people to focus on needs such as autonomy, competence, and relatedness that promote psychological growth. Yeah, I would say psychological well-being is one of the biggest benefits of minimalism. You can call this other words, calm, peace, tranquility, equanimity, happiness, even. I, um, I don't know that I believe in happiness anymore. Like, as a, in fact, I think our happiness is one of the things that makes us so unhappy the desire to constantly be happy. We're supposed to be happy. Hey, are you happy with this? Well, happiness is so ephemeral, right? You experience it and it goes away and it's peaks and valleys. And we're often not even going after happiness. We're merely running away from misery. The third and final key point in this article is the relationship between minimalism and well-being may be stronger for low income and older individuals. You know, I think this is partially true. I can tell you that growing up, extremely poor, you know, bottom 5%, probably bottom 2 or 3% of the income in this country, just really, really poor, food stamps, government assistance, and a lot of poor habits, poor behaviors, 
a poor understanding of what it means to be a human being and live in this world intentionally, deliberately. We, um, we didn't have a whole lot of resources. And one of those resources was money. Now, money can, it's a tool. And you can use that tool, as I did in my 20s, as I climbed the corporate ladder, to buy more things, to go greater into debt, to actually remove your freedom. So as you get more money, that people grant you more credit. Well, going into debt is simply giving your freedom to someone else. Oh, you could tweet that podcast, Sean. And if you're giving away your freedom, that all of a sudden means someone else has power over you. And so, yes, if you have financial independence, no longer are you beholden to the power structures of yesteryear, the corporation that you work for. Now, it's not wrong to work for a corporation, but if you're not beholden to them, then you're showing up every day because you want to show up there, right? Or if you're not worried about paying for the car because you don't have a car payment, you've just got a piece of your freedom back. Or if you don't want to have to worry about your student debt, there are ways to go through all of college with zero student debt. Our friend Anthony O'Neill wrote the book about this. It's called Debt-Free Degree. You can literally, we, we did a whole podcast episode. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. We did a whole podcast episode with him. And he talked about how you can get through college 100% debt-free. And it's way, way simpler than you might think. But what does that do for you? It means that you're not giving away your freedom to some institution. And so I think they're, they're spot on here. However, I think one of the things that is beneficial, no matter what your level of resources are, you or is, no matter what your level of resources is, you can feel stress, anxiety, discontent by the habits that are amplified by the amount of money that you spend or make or the perceived amount of money you think you need. There's a reason that billionaires kill themselves when the stock market crashes. Oh my God, I had 9 billion, now I'm only worth 2 billion. My life is over. Can you imagine? None of us in this room will ever be billionaires, except Jordan might, he might do something crazy that creates a, the billion dollar idea. And, um, but the rest of us, we, uh, we can't even imagine having, you know, oh, I now I have 2 billion, but someone else, it's so devastating. It's all about these stories that we tell ourselves. One last article for you today in this more about less segment, Jess, social Jess, our social media manager, she, she sent this over to me and I found it really fascinating. This one's from The Hill, and it's called, well, the title is Lush Cosmetics Quitting Social Media to Bring Awareness to Mental Health. Take a sip of that coffee real quick. Some Bandit Coffee, banditcoffee.co. Not a uh, advertisement, but that is Ryan's of my coffee company if you want to order any coffee. And um, let's see here. This is a quote from the article. So Lush Cosmetics, it's a cosmetics brand, I suppose. They're quitting social media to bring awareness to mental health. Here's a pull quote from it. We wouldn't ask our customers to meet us down a dark and dangerous alley, but some social media platforms are beginning to feel like places no one should be encouraged to go. Wow. 
So here are the um, the three key takeaways here. Global cosmetics company Lush is swearing off social media platforms. The company announced it will be deactivating its Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and chat, Snapchat, <laughs> Snapchat, and TikTok accounts globally beginning November 26 of 2021. The company said. It wants to see these social media companies implement stronger best practice guidelines and international regulations to be enacted. You know, I've often thought about this. In fact, since we're just talking to our patrons, we can talk about this. Ryan and I have been pitching a digital minimalism documentary series that may or may not get made. In fact, we um, we already filmed quite a bit of it. And uh, you should see the stunning trailer. We'll probably share it with our VIPs here in the not too distant future we put together this pitch trailer where ryan is going around on this futuristic skateboard one of those one wheel skateboards and all of the ads that he runs into throughout hollywood and la on the skateboard start transforming into him and it's like him with a watch a rolex or him with a coat or makeup or all of these and it it really goes to show how many advertisements we see in a day forbes says we see somewhere between four and 10,000 advertisements a day. Well, with that many coming in, no wonder we're so anxious with, uh, no wonder we feel so incomplete because they're making us feel incomplete. And one of the ways we see so many of these ads is where? It's social media. It's why I always pay the premium whenever I can to remove ads from a platform if that is the option. So with YouTube, I pay the 12 bucks or whatever it is to make sure I have YouTube premium so I never see an ad on YouTube. And uh, unless someone is, oh, someone's placing ads in the middle of their podcast or video or whatever, doing their own ad reads, which, uh, you know, what's fascinating to me, Danny, is, you know, people often, they, um, <laughs> they, they complain about being demonetized on YouTube. It, nothing drives me crazier because people pretend they have the right to just be given sponsors by YouTube. YouTube's already given you a free service. Do you know how much it would cost to host videos on your own? Like $10,000 a month. And they're giving you a free service to upload and share your videos. And people are complaining because I'm being demonetized or I'm being shadow banned. They're not putting me in the algorithm. How absurd is that? You don't have a right to any of this stuff. The reason that these social media companies exist is to try to sell you products through advertising. And they're really, really effective. Why are they so effective? Because they mine your data. They know what you like more than you know what you like. And that's why companies rarely ever go out to their consumers and say, hey, what is it that you want from us? Because if you had done that, uh, a few hundred years ago, you would have never invented the car. You just made a better horse and buggy. Steve Jobs would have made a better Palm Pilot, right? No, no, no. You you can't you can't go to the consumers and ask them what they want because quite often we don't know what we want intellectually. Our behaviors show what we want, and so when we get on social media, they track our behaviors, what we like, and then they sell us things based on those behaviors. So back to the documentary series that we're working on that hopefully we'll see the light of day in three or four or five years from now. 
one of the things that we're talking about doing is just walking away from social media. You know, we have 2 million plus followers on social media and just walking away from that completely, or maybe walking away from it, but walking towards something else. You know, we do a text platform right now when uh, we give out that phone number, 937-202-4654. We, um, that literally goes to my phone. Now it's a separate app. We, we use a company called Community and I can respond to people directly. There's no advertising, there's no spam, there's no junk, there's no stream of incessant breaking, broken news. It's merely direct one-on-one communication. Now we pay a ton of money for that. It's hundreds of, hundreds of dollars a month to, to be able to communicate with a very small portion of our audience. It's by far the smallest portion of our audience. But I find that those conversations are often far more valuable than um, you know, sending out a random tweet into the noise. And that's the problem with social media. It's so, so noisy that you have to yell. You have to do something obnoxious. During the live stream before this, we were, Danny and I were laughing at the, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, da- uh, Mike Serv? Yeah, Mike Servin. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, the Jesus Christ guy. He's doing like this parody of uh, a social media influencer in a way, and he has become one. But you see that all the time where people have to become parodic uh, versions of themselves in order to get attention, to get noticed, right? And that just ups the threshold, right? And that's not healthy for any of us because now we become desensitized. It's the same reason I heard Billie Eilish recently came out and said that porn completely ruined her brain. And we had Lisa Ann, a porn star on the podcast, a few years ago, funny story about that. You weren't here yet, Danny, but uh, neither was was Mallory. Okay. Yeah, there, there was this moment in between. We were recording the minimal episode, and then we paused for the maximal, and we were just laughing it up. It was me and Ryan and Jordan and Sean and Lisa Ann in the room. Now, for the women listening to this, Lisa Ann is probably the most famous porn star in America, definitely one of the top five, And um, but she has... She has moved on from that career. I think she may still do some of it sometimes, some directing or whatever. And it was such an enlightening conversation. But in between episodes, we were just laughing it up. We were having this conversation. like It was getting kind of loud in there. And we were at a, a shared co-working space at the time where our studio was. And this guy starts knocking on the door because he was, I guess, studying across the hall and like, like preparing for some law, some bar exam. So he opens the door. Uh, we open the door. And you just see four guys and Lisa Ann who <laughs> were making all this noise. And you just saw this dude from across the hall. His face went white. Like, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on in here? And uh, anyway, um, where was I going with this whole story? Um, uh, Billie oh, Eilish. Yeah. Yeah. Billie Eilish talked about porn uh, ruining her brain. Well, why? Because why? it desensitized her to reality. Now, Bex and I, my, my wife, uh, Bex, she has a podcast called How to Love. And we recently on an episode on there talked about how we you can use porn to amplify your experience. But it's the same thing as we were talking about with money before, right? Money can absolutely ruin your life. A lack of money can ruin your life. An abundance of money you don't know what to do with can make you a target and ruin your life. And yet, we all want more of it. And we think we want more of it, right? 
And it's, there's nothing wrong with money. Just like there's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with porn. But the problem is when we become desensitized to the world around us. We're so desensitized that um, we're no longer living in reality. We have this fantasy of the way things are supposed to be. And that fantasy can never be replicated in the real world. That's the real problem with advertising. Advertisements are seductive. Well, to be seductive, that merely means to seduce someone. To seduce someone is to promise more than you can ever deliver. That's what seduction is. That's what advertisers do. They promise more than they can ever deliver. They're going to solve your problems. They're going to make you happy. They're going to make you complete. They're going to make you feel better and they're going to do it quickly and easily. And you're not even going to have to get out of your seat. That's a huge problem. Anyway, back to this article here. Lush has decided to walk away from social media. And I applaud them for that. Now, this could just be a simple PR stunt or it could. I think that's the, the weird thing is if it's just a PR stunt, so what? Good for them, I, I guess. You know, they're, they're not, no longer adding if they felt like they were adding to the noise. But here's the thing. They were adding to the noise. Were they adding any value to people's lives with the lush social media accounts? Hell no. And so so what that they're leaving, right? If. You can add value with social media. That's when you really start to get into a dilemma here, right? Because with the minimalists, I often ask this question before I send a tweet or post an article or whatever it might be is, does this add value? It's the same question I ask with my material possessions. And if the answer is no, then I don't click send. Well, why don't I click send? Because I don't want to add to the noise. If anything, I want to whisper into the noise and the people close by who are really seeking it out, they can... They can find it. We have uh, so much to talk about here. Quick uh, public service announcement. We have a lot of new patrons around here. Welcome aboard, simpletons. If you, uh, if you haven't done so already, go onto the Patreon website, patreon.com slash the minimalists. Upload your profile photo. People like people. They don't like icons. So they identify with people as you're interacting with our private community over there. Make sure you upload your photo. It's all private. So, but we like to interact with you as a person, not some avatar of you. It's not a requirement, but it is a request. We would certainly appreciate it. Also, PSA for you. A couple, couple more things here. One is there are several ways to listen to our private podcast. You can obviously watch the video if you get the video version of it. A lot of people have been enjoying that video version. Or you can listen on the Patreon app directly. About half of our audience, surprisingly, listens on the Patreon app, which is great if that's what you prefer. Personally, I prefer to listen via RSS feed. And so you have your own private RSS link that you can upload into any of your, well, your favorite uh, RSS player, what we call podcatchers, right? So the one I use is called Overcast, which I actually pay, I think, a dollar a month or Maybe it's $9.99 a year or something for the ad-free version of that. I use Overcast. I just think it's the most clean and, and user-friendly. Or you can use Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Feedly or Acast. Those are all different platforms that you can use to play podcasts. I prefer that because it gives me greater control. I like to listen at a slightly faster speed. Sometimes I'll even listen at like 1.8 or, or 2.0 if, uh, if I'm really in the groove. I'm not recommending that, but you can speed up our podcast and listen to it more quickly if you'd like. Or if you've played it twice the speed, you can listen to it twice in the same amount of time if you want. But uh, 
you can do that. You just head on over to The Minimalist, actually, patreon.com slash The Minimalist, and you can have your RSS feed right there, just right from your phone. You can do that. Or you can listen right on the pod, uh, the the Patreon app if you would like. And then finally, a lot of people asked. So we set this up. Our, our good friend Emma, the immigrant, she set up the um, maximal and minimal episodes now correspond with each other. So the public minimal episodes, say you wanted to go back and, and listen to episode 272 about hidden clutter. But now you're like, oh, which one, which maximal episode goes with this? Because the maximal episodes don't have numbers on them. Well, there's a reason they don't, is we didn't have maximal episodes when we first started. So I thought it'd be weird to start with episode 130 uh, on Patreon. So the maximal episodes just have titles. But if you go to patreon.com slash the minimalists and you just type in episode space 272, so forward episode space 272, then you can find the corresponding episode. So that's how you find, and by the way, they're always published the same week, so you can always just cross, cross-reference with the date. But if you've gone back and you've listened, I want to listen to episode 219, how do I find the maximal for that? Patreon.com slash The Minimalist, search box, just type in episode space 219, you're good to go. Let's talk about relationship clutter. We often talk about clutter because we have our material possessions. Our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So if I have a lot of excess stuff in my life, I probably have a lot of excess in other areas of my life. This week on the minimal episode, we talked about paper clutter, and I have a few other paper clutter questions we can get to during this maximal episode today. But before we do that, I want to talk about these other forms of clutter, non-material clutter. When we get past the stuff is when we really start questioning these other areas of our lives that are truly making us miserable. We thought it was just the stuff, and if I got rid of my excess stuff, I would somehow experience perpetual bliss. But then we get rid of the stuff and we, we sit in an empty house. It's like, oh, this is pretty calm. This is nice. But my relationships are a little bit chaotic. Oh, I don't really like this job the way I thought I liked it. I'm feeling some angst, some overwhelm, some stress. Well, that's emotional clutter, right? I'm so busy. That's calendar clutter. I've organized all my stuff, but I didn't get rid of a whole bunch of it. Well, that's organizational clutter. All those extra storage boxes and bins and label makers that you purchased at the container store are actually part of the problem. And so I want to go through these sort of one by one here, because as I started letting go 11, 12 years ago at this point of the excess stuff, I started letting go in all these other areas of my life. My relationships, I realized that, oh, many of these relationships, these people aren't bad or wrong or evil, but they're toxic for me. We share time together because we share proximity. Maybe we grew up in the same neighborhood or we work in the same office building or their cubicle is next to my office or whatever it might be. Maybe we spend time at networking events together and I'm accidentally forsaking the people closest to me. Why? Because, well, proximity, convenience. This is more convenient. Well, yeah. I'm just going with the flow. If you do what is convenient long enough, it's going to make you miserable. 
And I did that in other areas of my life as well. But I had to start reprioritizing my relationships. In our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, we identified these three different types of relationships. You have your primary relationships. You can usually count those on one hand, two hands if you're Catholic. And um, this is the people close to you, friend, family member, kids, spouse, your closest best friend just a handful of people who are closest to you. Then you have these secondary relationships. Extroverts like Ryan, they tend to have a lot more secondary relationships. So you have your primary, then you have your secondary. These are the, the way to think about it is like you have the main characters in a film and then you have the supporting cast, the secondary layers, your supporting cast in your life, your friends, your extended family, some coworkers you're close with. And then you have that tertiary group or the peripheral relationships in your life. The problem for me and for a lot of people is we spend all of our time, 90% of our time with the people in the periphery and it doesn't leave any time for the people closest to us. And it doesn't leave any time for yourself to explore who you are as a person. And so reprioritizing those relationships means either letting go of some of those people who are on the periphery, not because you hate them or you don't want them anymore, but because you only have 24 hours in a day, or maybe some of them, and this could be in any of those tiers, maybe some of them are truly toxic, or maybe it's not even them who are toxic, but it's you who are toxic together. It's a chemical reaction. They're fine on their own. You're fine on your own, but you come together and it's just arguments and passive aggression and bickering and fighting and discontent, showing up and being next to someone, but never truly being with them. It's trying to change someone. By the way, I think that's a key indicator there. Anytime you want to change someone, it's really something that you want to change in yourself. Oh, you could tweet that podcast, Sean. And anytime you want to change someone, it means you're not happy with the way they are. It doesn't mean they should change. It means that, unfortunately, you hate them. Oh, that sounds harsh, right? you hate that person? No, it doesn't mean you hate them, but you hate their behavior. But if you add up all their behaviors, that's ultimately who we're talking about here. To love someone means to not want to change them, right? To accept them for who they are. So after reprioritizing some relationships, some of them will fall by the wayside, some of which you'll have to create some distance from. How do you create that distance? Not necessarily by saying no to someone, but by saying yes to the people are most important to you by treating the people closest to you like they are the people closest to you. A few months after I simplified, I realized how discontent I was in my career. It's not that my, I had a bad job. In fact, ostensibly, I was really successful. I managed a whole bunch of retail stores. I was responsible for hundreds and hundreds of employees. And the people around me somewhat wanted to be me in a sense that they, oh, it'd be great to have that position, not be me, Joshua Field Milburn, but one to be the director of operations of who gives a crap, right? And, and so I worked for a large corporation and I realized it didn't align with my values anymore. The only way I realized that is because I had value clutter for a long time. I didn't know what my values were, but as I started letting go of the excess stuff, I started reprioritizing some of my relationships. Now, all of a sudden, 
I had to ask myself, well, what do you value? What's your foundation? That's why we have that values worksheet over at theminimalists.com slash resources. So you can download that and identify what your values are. And I found that it's important for me to know the values of many of the people closest to me. So I know Ryan's values and I know my wife's values because it helps me better communicate with them. And as my values change, well, it's important to communicate that as well. Because if I don't know what my values are, I can't articulate my values, then how is someone else supposed to know what I value? How are they supposed to be considerate of me if I don't even know what's important to me? So I realized in my career that I had career clutter. I was spending 60, 70, usually 80 hours a week. There are a few times I would work 90 plus hours a week and I was addicted to it. It was the path of least resistance. And I was good at it. That was another problem. But just because you're good at something doesn't mean you find it meaningful. It doesn't mean you find purpose in it. Or maybe you did find purpose in it at one point in time. Or maybe you find a purpose in a piece of it. And that was the case for me. I found about 20% of what I was doing incredibly purpose-driven. And that part had to do with adding value to other people's lives. And so the people that worked closely with me, I would show them how to live more intentionally. And as I started doing that, I realized, oh, there are things I can take from this job, from this career, and actually turn it into something that one might call a mission in life. And I learned public speaking while I was there. I learned actually how to write better while I was there, believe it or not, because people often came to me at work and said, oh, the, the, the creative emails you write for the corporation, no one else writes emails like this. It's all communication, except yours are so expressive. And, and so people actually found value in the way I was writing. And so I was able to tweeze that out of my career, the public speaking out of the career, the organizational, the leadership, the business side of things. So you can learn things, you can bring those forward and you can leave everything else behind. Now it takes time. It took uh, several years for me to pay off enough debt to be able to walk away from that corporate career. But when I did, I made $23,000 that first year, but I was more financially secure that year than when I was making $200,000 the year before that. I also had a lot of emotional clutter in my life. I worried a lot. I stressed out a lot. I had a lot of anxiety. Now, where does that come from? Really, it comes from our expectations. Your happiness is moderated by your expectations. My happiness was moderated by my expectations. And therefore, if you're feeling a lot of unhappiness, a lot of discontent, a lot of overwhelm, if you're upset and angry, it has to do with, I wish something was different. Now, maybe that's an indicator and it's something that you can change within yourself or you can change the circumstances around you. But quite often, the safer path, the more effective path is to change the expectation or to let go of it altogether. If you want to declutter emotional clutter, it's not about the seven tips to relieve stress. Stress doesn't appear when you've moderated your expectations in a way that no longer make you miserable. Let's talk about calendar clutter, busyness, 
Busy is the worst four-letter word in the English language, and yet we use it all the time. And it's a badge of honor. And we fill up our calendars. Why? Well, it makes us feel significant. If I look at my calendar and I say, oh, my month is so full. This week is so full. I was just doing an interview yesterday with um, Ben Greenfield. I think it was the only thing on my calendar yesterday. I think that maybe we had one other thing on there. But very rarely do I have more than one or two things on my calendar in a day. And I like to focus on those things. This doesn't make me any better than anyone else. It just made me realize that all of that calendar clutter was making me miserable. And I didn't want to experience that stress and that anxiety and that I'm supposed to do all of these things. And, oh, it's virtuous. It's good to be productive. How could you eliminate all these things on your calendar and still be productive? Well, I question the the essence of that question there because it presupposes that productivity is a good thing. No, productivity is merely a byproduct of doing whatever you do. You will always produce something. Now, is what you're producing worth producing? I spent all of my 20s producing things that weren't worth producing. Selling cell phones to little kids and and security systems. to it, It just wasn't, it wasn't meaningful to me. And I don't have anything to show for it necessarily. And yet, I felt compelled to do it and do a lot of it and do it every day and stay busy, keep my hands moving. Why? Why do we make ourselves so busy? So we don't have to stop and think about all the ways that we're discontent. We don't have to think about all the clutter in our lives, the emotional clutter, the relationship clutter. Because if we don't have to think about it, we don't have to deal with it. Or at least that's what we say, but we deal with it in so many other ways. It appears in our lives in pernicious, dangerous ways because we start treating our significant others poorly. We start wasting money on things we don't need. We start lashing out passive aggressively or just aggressively. We start embarking on poor habits and routines and behaviors that are actually disempowering because we're so busy. That's why we do it. I also noticed that as I simplified my life, I felt compelled to start bringing things in that actually added more clutter. I would go to Walmart or Target or wherever and try to buy a bunch of bins Boxes, label makers, packaging, things to organize my life. Shelves and systems and tools. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with these things. But quite often they hide the clutter. It's just like a lot of, a lot of the how-to stuff hides the emotional clutter. Yes, it's helpful to breathe for a minute or meditate for 20 minutes. But if that's all that we're doing, my friend John Deloney has a great analogy for this. Anxiety is actually a fire alarm. And you don't want to turn off the anxiety. If you come home and your smoke alarm is going off, You don't say, oh my God, I can fix this real quick. And you grab the step stool and you take the battery out of the smoke alarm. That's what we do with anxiety, with stress, 
We try to just turn off the alarm. These emotions that are peeking out to you, if you're listening to this right now, I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in your car, maybe you're doing the dishes, or maybe you're walking the dog. Maybe you're on a treadmill somewhere, you're at the gym. Maybe you're at work. Maybe you're at home cleaning the house. If you're feeling stressed today, that is a sign that something is wrong. Now, it could just be that your expectations are misaligned. Your expectations are actually everyone else's expectations. I talked about this recently with that essay that I wrote about nobody has the power to upset you. Because if someone else has an expectation of you, that creates a prison. But realizing those are their prison bars. They are not yours. And you can walk away from their cell at any time. We got a bunch of rapid fire questions here, Alabama. I thought maybe we would go through. We reached out to our patrons. We've got like 62 of them here. I thought we would just go through a bunch of these. Here's what I'm going to try to do. Some of you left some long questions. We'll save those for a future Ask the Minimalists Anything session. We record those regularly. In fact, we've done 52 of them so far. Ask the Minimalists Anything for our true fans and VIPs over on Patreon. And so you'll be able to check that out for some of the longer, deeper questions. But since we're recording this live stream toward the end of the year, I thought our live stream could participate as well. But this is coming out at the beginning of 2022. And I thought it'd be a great way to start the new year with some rapid fire, silly, more lighthearted questions here. So let's, uh, let's answer. Uh, we'll start with Carrie's question. We'll just go from there. What are your thoughts on New Year's resolutions? I think they suck. I mean, <laughs> I think a New Year's resolution is just a way to say a goal. And I don't do goals because goals stress me out. Marie has a question for us. How many intentions did you set for 2022 and how did you categorize them? <laughs> Sean, I'm interested in this. You, uh, you have a, a microphone over there. So um, you are imminently organized. I, I see the way that you try to be. You, you, you take notes and, and so I don't know that you write down intentions and stuff necessarily, but do you take this time of year to sort of reflect the end of the year or the beginning of the new year at all? Hmm. I, uh, I don't do it as an annual thing. I do it as a daily thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so much more important to sort of chunk it that way. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I reflect on, uh, you know, typically at the, the end of the day or the beginning of the, the following day, I'll reflect on, you know, what has happened recently, what I think went well, what I think I need to improve upon. Um, even the things that are like at the time seem catastrophically bad, right? Or it was a, a, a poor decision. Um, I always try to, I mean, it's, it's a cliche to say the silver lining, but I always say, well, what was the lesson that I pulled out of that? Mm -hmm. A perfect example. Um, this is actually my my wife's example, but you and I talked about this. Uh, this is the last time uh, my wife and my daughters were here. And um, she had stayed up all night to pack and get ready. And then they came in and she was just exhausted, but still wanted to go out. And she, she was really hungry, wanted to go out and get something to eat. You recall the story now, right? Yeah. This is good. So she had, yeah, so she had brought, in, or she had brought, rather, brought with her uh, $800 in cash and had it in her purse. And uh, we went out to eat. She had a purse with her, and what she'd failed to do was keep it 
zipped up. Mm. So when I'm she... constantly telling my wife to zip her purse oh because of this. Right. So I'm sure the audience is starting to know where this is going. <laughs> so we we sit down, we eat, and then uh, when we get back to the apartment, um, she's going in her purse and she realizes her uh, wallet is not in her purse. And so we search uh, the apartment thinking, well, maybe, you know, she just set it down somewhere. No. So we go back to the place and, of course, I mean, it's cash, right? So everybody there said, no, we, we haven't seen it, you know. And it's cash, so it's like that's $800 gone. And you and I had talked about this. And, and, and I wasn't about to beat her up at the moment you know about this i'm like it's it's gone it's you gone mean this metaphorically either way yeah i was like you know i because it was the beginning of their trip right they were going to be there for like a week and a half yeah and i thought you know let it go i've already let it go you let it go and uh when you and i talked about it you're like well it's an 800 dollars lesson right yeah. You never, and I'm like, yeah. Thank God it wasn't something more serious. 800 bucks, a ton of money. But, it's a lot of money. But, right, it's it's a, it's a lesson in, and I'll tell you since then, her purse has been zipped up. In fact, she has a little clip to clip the zipper to the, the strap. Right? Yeah. So you actually have to disengage it to pull the purse open now. You know, it's, uh, I have those little tile trackers. I know I recommended this mm. on an episode. A while ago, I didn't recommend it. It's added value. I don't recommend anything to anyone ever. So if you ever hear me use that word, I'm not telling you you should have something. I'm just telling you I get value from. And I know Apple makes one. There's another company called Tracker. Uh, the ones I use are, are from a company called Tile. And I've got it in my bag, in my wallet, in my car, in all these different places. So if I do lose something, then I can uh, find it relatively Easily, it just goes right right from my phone. In fact, if I lose my phone, I can hit my on my uh, keys. There's a little button that'll uh, set my phone ringing, and I'll be able to find it as well. So that's uh. Do I have any intentions for 2022? That, yes, but they're the same intentions I have all the time. If you're clear about what your values are, health, relationships, creativity, contribution, etc., then those are my intentions. Now, is now a good time to realign my intentions with my actions? Yes, absolutely. But if you understand what you value and you truly understand it at a visceral level, then you'll go ahead and pursue that. You won't need any discipline or motivation because you'll understand where it's taking you. Aisha has a question for us. What did Joshua look like when he was 80 pounds heavier? <laughs> Here's the messed up part. I was 80 pounds heavier twice. So I was literally, when Ryan and I met, I was the fattest kid in the fifth grade. I, when I was 12 years old, I weighed about 240 pounds. So that was seventh grade. And it was, in fact, there's a picture of me in uh, Love People Use Things. So if you want to see it, grab your copy of Love People Use Things. It's right in there in, in one of the, the early chapters. You can see me in my Lebanon High School library or L Lebanon library shirt. Uh, it's a little town we lived in at the time outside of Dayton. And um, <laughs> I was, I had a mullet too. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was a disaster. I imagine this little 12 year old kid, 240 pounds with a mullet. Um, I still had a sick jumper though. Yeah. 
Yeah, two four. But then, so I, I in high school, I uh, so I was sadly I was this height in eighth grade, and I just I stopped growing because well, I think the main reason was I basically stopped eating in high school. It was a very unhealthy way to lose the weight. I ate next to nothing. And in fact, there, there's a story in a lot of people use things where I lost so much weight in a year. I went from 240 to 139. I'm 6'2". I was 6'2 and I weighed 139. And there was a kid and his name was Sean. He, uh, he saw me in the bathroom freshman year of high school. He goes, are you related to Josh Milburn? I'm like, yeah, that's me. And like, he, he looked like he saw a ghost or something, but sadly I kind of looked like a ghoul. So yes, I was, uh, but then I gained it all back because I lost it unhealthily. I gained it all back in my early twenties, but then I lost it in a, a healthy way in my, my mid twenties. And I've kept it off ever since I've been six, two and one sixty five for, I don't know, 10, 15 years now. Yuri has a question for us. My favorite sports team lost a big game recently. I literally felt grief about the loss. Is this a problem of attachment? Should I let go of my affection for the team? Well, there are no shoulds here. There are only coulds. And so can you let go of the affection for your team? You can. What would that do for you? Would you feel less anxiety? Now, trust me, as a fan of the Utah Jazz, I constantly feel anxiety around that team, usually only during the playoffs, because during the rest of the year, I can watch basketball and just enjoy it as an art and not need the team to win. But yeah, as soon as you need to win or you're now using your team as a proxy to win, you're going to feel discontent. The win is never as sweet as the misery is as high for the loss. Michelle has a question for us. Do you have any advice for getting my husband to minimize? He keeps taking things from the Goodwill box and putting them back into the storage <laughs> closet. Help. Yeah, well, here's the thing. You're actually stealing from him. So be careful here. To give away someone else's thing is theft. And I would never, ever do that. Not even with my daughter, right? And so I, well, why wouldn't I do that? Why isn't he simplifying? And why are you simplifying? He's not simplifying because he knows the what and he sees pain around the what. I don't want to get rid of those things. Those things represent something to me. I get some sort of perceived value from it. That's the only reason he's clinging to it is he thinks there's more value in holding on to it than letting go of it. But you think there's more value in letting go of it than there is, well, clinging to it. So, yes. You're not on the same page right now. Why aren't you on the same page right now? Because you understand the benefits of simplifying for you. He does not understand the benefits of simplifying for him. Now, this is highly subjective. It's perspectival because you might simplify and you experience a calmness. He might simplify and experience an emptiness, a brokenness. He may have to feel, oh no, now that I've got rid of my pacifiers, I actually have to deal with some of these real problems in my life. I have to deal with the relationship clutter or the career clutter or the calendar clutter in my life. And maybe he's not ready for that. By the way, Michelle, how long did it take you to simplify? Let's say it was 30 years. Probably not going to happen with him overnight, but the quicker path is not to tell him what to do or how to do it not to try to convince him at all, 
the quicker path is to help him understand the benefits of simplifying. If he understands how his life might be better with less stuff, with less clutter, then you're not going to have any problem getting him to clean out that storage closet and donate all of the excess. Kate has a question for us. How do I overcome binge eating as a minimalist? Mm. Yeah. So the reason that you binge eat and as a former binge eater myself, I totally, totally get this. As I said, I was obese twice in my life, morbidly obese. You can check the photo for proof and, and love people use things. Yeah, it's uh, the reason we binge eat is because we're covering up our problems. It is a way to control our lives when we feel like our life is out of control. We feel like there's so much chaos around us that I need some sort of control. It often manifests in different ways. In fact, some psychologists argue that binge eating is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Binge eaters tend to obsess over their food in more ways than one. The other side of that is anorexia. My wife is a dietitian and nutritionist. She worked at a university for over a, a decade. And the number one thing she dealt with was anorexia, especially young women who felt they needed to complete themselves. They needed to improve themselves. They needed to better themselves by not eating. It gave them a different kind of control, but it's all the same thing. We're all seeking control. And we do a lot of things to try to control our lives because we feel like there's so much chaos. Well, understanding chaos is the beautiful half of it. Chaos is what creates, well, it creates passion. It makes things interesting. Right? If your life was completely predictable all the time, what would you call it? Bored. You'd be bored out of your mind. And boredom is not a bad thing. But when we have so much certainty, we lose all the variety in our life. And so you're clinging to some sort of certainty. And eating food and overeating food gives us certainty, just like undereating gives us certainty in the moment. But it doesn't fulfill us. It certainly doesn't nourish us. In fact, many of the things we binge eat on are empty calories. The same is true with materialism. The same is true with our relationships. The same is true with our calendar clutter. These are empty calories. We're binging in every area of our, of our life because we always think more is better. Even with anorexia, that's a type of more, more fasting, more not eating, more, more, more. We never stop to consider Less, less doing and more being. Joseph has a question for us. What minimalist principles have you applied to your businesses that have led to their success? I don't know that I have any minimalist principles for business. I think the reason that our business has been quote unquote successful, if you want to call it that, anything that we've done that people might perceive as successful is because there has, we've never been tethered to an outcome Anything that has gone wildly better than we would have hoped had we had a hope for it, it's been, I won't say by accident, because it's been, it's been intentional what we've done, but it hasn't been tethered to an outcome. When uh, we wrote our second book, Everything That Remains, and we didn't have a huge audience back then, but it really caught fire. We move out of this cabin in the middle of nowhere. And the real reward of that book, the best part about it was writing it. It was pure joy writing that book. And it's still probably my favorite thing that we've ever done. In fact, uh, we're coming up on 
This year will be the 10-year anniversary of the writing of it, not of the publication, but of the writing of the first draft will be later in 2022. And it was pure joy writing that first draft. And then the subsequent drafts we, we wrote in Missoula, Montana. We wrote those, the first draft, though, in this cabin in the middle of nowhere, Montana, Phillipsburg. One traffic light, 3,400 square miles. It was quite the experience. Negative 26 degrees when you woke up in the morning. You had to keep the fire going. You had to wake up in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. just to put some more logs on the fire. It was, um, it was quite the experience. And there was pure joy in writing that. And then we did a hundred city tour associated with it. And some media really started picking it up and it did really, really well. It, in fact, at one point it was the number nine book on all of Amazon, number two memoir on all of Amazon. And we, that was before the podcast, before the Netflix film, before the second Netflix film, before we had a big social media fall. And we basically just had a blog and that blog was one of the best things that we've ever done. So if there's one minimalist practice or principle or whatever you want to call it, it always comes down to adding value. If I publish an essay, why do I do it? Because I want to add value to someone else's life. Good businesses make money. Great businesses make a difference. Ellen has a question for us. Is it better to be a minimalist in silence I am practicing minimalism, but I don't announce it to anyone. I feel that it's like a religion that a person has a right to practice on their own without having to explain or answer to anyone. There's all kinds of irony asking uh, or answering this question here because as one of the minimalists, it may seem as though I'm proselytizing. I'm trying to convert you to minimalism, but nothing could be farther from the truth. I don't care if you become a minimalist, call yourself a minimalist, or if you simplify at all. What Ryan and I do is we share a recipe that has worked really well for us, and we've seen it work well for millions of other people. And we've seen firsthand testimonials from tens of thousands of people at our live events or hundreds of thousands of people commenting on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else. And those testimonials are, they are, hmm. I want to say validating, but I'm not seeking anyone's validation, right? Um, Is it better to be a minimalist in silence? Yeah, it was for me. Now, I never jumped up and said, look at me, I'm becoming a minimalist and you should too. The reason people were so attracted to minimalism at first, you know, people at work started coming up to me and saying things like, you seem so much calmer, you seem less stressed, you, you seem kinder. What's going on with you? Ryan came to me and he said, why the hell are you so happy lately? I never told anyone about minimalism until people started asking, what is going on with you? Because I seemed like not a different person, but a calmer version of myself, calmer aesthetically, but also calmer internally. And so is it better to practice in silence? My friend, Nate Green, who's been on the podcast before, I also quoted him in Love People Use Things said, I speak only when it adds more value than silence. And he doesn't speak very much. So I think there's your answer. We have three sort of questions that go together. We'll start with Christie's here, but these are all about books, it looks like. What are each of your favorite books and why? So I have, it depends what you mean, fiction, nonfiction, etc. I'm going to start with just some fiction 
that I've read recently, the corrections, uh, not the correction, I'm sorry. The, um, what's his new one? Crossroads. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Franzen, but he's the author of the corrections, but he wrote Crossroads and it came out in 2021. It's probably the best book I've ever read. And it's actually part of a trilogy from what I understand. I, those characters are still living with me many, many weeks after reading the book. And so that's when you know the, a book resonates on a particular level when the characters just stay with you. And his last book, well, a couple of books ago, he wrote a book called Freedom. Those characters still feel like they're with me. I always like wonder what the characters are, are doing these days, which that's how real they felt. So the word is versimilitude. And versimilitude just means that the, the story feels real. So Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads is just a masterpiece of a book. Really enjoyed that. I think my previous favorite novel, there's two. Lionel Shriver, she is, I think, the most muscular writer that I've ever read. She is just, her vocabulary is off the charts, but her precision with with words is just amazing. She wrote this book called The Motion of the Body Through Space. It's a novel, and it's phenomenal. She's she's also most known for that uh, book called We Need to Talk About Kevin, which they turned into a really creepy movie. I don't know if y'all ever saw that, but woo, uh, the book itself is pretty creepy as well. But uh, The Motion of the Body Through Space, and then David Foster Wallace's The Pale King is... Um, a masterpiece that I've, I always go back to. I'll go back and just read a, a chapter in it. It's an, it's his unfinished novel. He committed suicide and he, in the room that he committed suicide in, he had 5,000 pages sort of stacked up and um, they figured out how to piece it together and turn it into this unfinished novel, which is beautiful. It, to me, it actually feels like his most finished book because he's sort of known for not finishing books, even though, like Infinite Jest, the book that he's most known for, famously doesn't really end. It just, there's so many things that sort of resolve to the right of the frame, the right of the frame. Is this the right of the frame, Jordan, right here? Um, and, and so yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing. They, they resolve over here. His first novel called The Broom of the System ends mid-sentence. There's not even a, a, a period at the end. It, literally mid-sentence. It just ends. It feels like they didn't keep printing the the book, but um, yeah. Carrie has a question for going, us. Going, uh, yeah. sorry, just for a second. Going back to David Foster Wallace with um, Infinite Jest, he he hand wrote those drafts. Correct. <laughs> How many times did he draft that by hand, longhand? Yeah, University of Texas at Austin has all the drafts. I think he did nine of them. Nine. Yeah. So that, and and what's the what's the final uh, print? It's about a million million words, I think. Yeah, it's um, like fifteen hundred pages. It's uh ten seventy nine. Ten seventy nine. Yeah, that includes a footnote. So several hundred pages of well, in notes. <laughs> yeah. They're not footnotes. Um, yeah, I'm not recommending the <laughs> Infinite Jest. By the way, <laughs> most people will buy it and not get past the first two chapters. But it's uh, it's also a masterpiece. He wrote that when he was 33, and you can turn anywhere in the book, and every line is is beautiful. Well, it's, that's that's what you get when you've done a draft by hand yeah. nine times over. Yeah, it's astonishing. A uh, question here from Carrie: 
favorite fiction authors? Yeah, yeah, I've already mentioned the the top three. If I if I so Mount Rushmore for me, Jonathan Franzen, Lionel Shriver, David Foster Wallace. If I had to throw one more in there, it'd be genre fiction. Um, Adrian McKinty is. If you like crime fiction, he's it's like mixing literary fiction and crime fiction. He's actually been on the private podcast before on Patreon. I did a quarantine conversation with him. I've never met him in person, but he's one of the pr- people that actually made me want to write. And uh, I was grateful to be able to talk to him. So you can find that. We'll put a link to that in the in the show notes, Sean. And there's a pretty fascinating um, story you were telling me about Adrian McKenzie because he just kind of fell off the map there for a bit, right? Yeah, he's got a new book coming out. I can't I can't wait for him to come on the podcast. He's never been to Los Angeles, um, but he I yeah. Think, where, where is he? Where's he, he living now? He's from Northern Ireland, and so he writes a lot about the troubles in Northern Ireland. I think he might be in New York now. He was living in Australia for a while. He lived in Colorado. He was teaching high school for a bit. Mm, that's right. He and his wife and his kids sort of bounced around and he wrote some books that were widely acclaimed, all these awards, but they weren't selling much. Mm. And he couldn't make a living as a writer anymore. He was dedicated. He was all driving his... at one point, wasn't he? Yeah. So what, what, what happened is he said, I, I, I've tried, I've given this 20 years. I'm, I quit. I'm done writing. Mm. And he started Uber driving. Oh, that's it. Yeah. And then uh, he had an agent of a a friend writer of his um, call him up one day and say, hey, what what are you working on? He's like, oh, no, I'm done. He's like, well, do you have anything that you've been working on? He goes, yeah, I wrote this thing called The Chain. But yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going to, I'm just done. I've tried this thing. I win all these awards, but very few people are actually buying the book. Mm-hmm. He wrote this book called Dead I Well May Be, and it is a masterpiece. That, that was his uh, debut, right? Yeah, it was his debut of, of crime fiction. He wrote mm-hmm. a book before that called Everything Rhymes with Orange, which was just literary fiction. Okay. But he uh, he basically pulled out this book from his drawer called The Chain, and uh, his... Uh, his um, agent or this this agent said, hey, look, I'm going to sell this for you. I'm even going to give you an advance right now. So you, I want you to finish writing this because it wasn't done yet. Uh, and The Chain is such a good thriller. You can't put it down. If you have kids, it's hard to read, though, because it's about kidnapping and hmm. talk about verisimilitude. A lot of crime fiction actually lacks that sort of verisimilitude. It feels very like... You know, Mission Impossible sort of movie, but this feels so very real, like a crime that could happen to everyday people and uh, in everyday circumstances. It's such a great book. I think they're making it into a film too. Yeah, or did yeah. They? So he sold the rights to it, and he went from from driving Ubers to being a millionaire within a year. At, well, but he it took twenty, twenty five, thirty five years for him mm-hmm. to get there, right? And now he has a new book coming out as well. I don't recall the title off the top of my head, but I'm going to try and get him on the podcast to talk, to tell the whole story because mm. he, and he, he blogs almost every day too. I don't know how he does it. He's just an outpouring. And yeah. I think he keeps it. Uh, I, unless he changed it, his blog was um, really clean and simple too. There really wasn't, uh, yeah. I think it was almost, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it almost, um, uh, had that older yeah. blog format to it. I think it. he uses Blogspot or something. Yeah, still. Like he right? just yeah. he, he like needs to get it out there. And um, 
Yeah, my, well, and that's a perfect example. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but that's a perfect example of people that think I, I have to have this this perfect website or, you know, there's yeah. plenty of free stuff out there just to get started. Yes. Yeah, just get absolutely. started. Yeah. And like take action. We have that how to start a blog guide. Like and so for we even have some there's free resources on there as well. Like you can go to Blogspot or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if you or if you want to spend the three bucks a month or whatever for hosting, you can do that as well. The instructions that we give you there literally will show you how to start a blog within an hour. So an hour from now, you could be blogging if that's something you want to do. And a blog doesn't just have to be for writing. It can be for, you know, putting up podcasts and show notes and other resources. Mm-hmm. So like there's all kinds of things that you can you can do by creating your own website for free or next to free. It doesn't require the the perfect thing to get started. He um he wrote a blurb for for Love People Use Things and like it was the my favorite thing that I've ever gotten from anyone because it's like he really in fact the first uh the first page of Love People Use Things, I'll pull it up real quick, is an homage to Adrian McKinty. Uh it's written in the style of Adrian McKinty. So the uh, this is the first page of Love People Use Things. This is the preface called Pandemic Preparation. The streets are a rumpant with uniformed men wielding titanic assault rifles. That's the first line of a book called Love People Use Things, by the way. <laughs> the streets are a rumpant with uniformed men wielding titanic assault rifles. Through their megaphones, they command us to lock our doors and stay in our homes. Overhead, military... Military helicopters blare, staying alive by the Bee Gees from their intercoms. The soundtrack to our new dystopian future. Bang, bang. Two gunshots in rapid succession. I jolt awake to find my wife in bed next to me and our daughter in her room. Both asleep. Walk into the living room. Retract the window shade. Look out at my neighborhood. Los Angeles. Midnight. Empty boulevards, light rain beneath arc lamps, no sign of martial law, only a stalled pickup at the bottom of the hill. I let out a deep sigh, just a nightmare, fortunately. But the world in which I awoke, the so-called real world, is markedly different from the one I'd experienced the first four decades of my life. Not necessarily post-apocalyptic, but not normal either. Serpentine lines slithering through grocery store checkout aisles, boarded windows concealing hollowed-out Rodeo Drive storefronts, devastating silence blanketing empty movie theaters galvanized by dust and darkness, crowds separated at six-foot intervals being herded into bare-shelved food banks, anxious families coping with being alone together while, quote, sheltering in place. Hospitals splitting open with overworked nurses and doctors whose apoplectic whose apoplectic expressions are hidden only by their own homemade face masks. As I finish writing the final chapter of this book in the spring of 2020, the COVID-19 panic pandemic was seizing the globe. So that's just like the first page there, but it was really written because I always wanted. I, I mean, I published a novel in my 20s as a decade fades, but, um, this whole crime fiction thing, I'm like, I'm not probably never going to write a crime fiction. novel. I just don't have the drive to write a whole crime. Fi- I've actually tried to write a few in my twenties. There was a book I worked on called just past central. And it was the first, 
uh, well, second attempt at writing a novel. There was one before that called Cold Call about a salesman who got into a uh, a crime spree sort of thing. Neither one of those sort of made it anywhere. But um, I wanted to just write something as a that would be published. And it was a bit of an homage to Adrian McKinty. So he's definitely on my Mount Rushmore along with those other three, Franzen and Wallace and, and Lionel Shriver. Oliver has a question for us. What are your top three nonfiction books of the year? He also put in there, L put excluded. So L put is love people use things. Yeah, I would exclude that. I don't, I don't read a whole lot of nonfiction. If I'm being frank with you. Although I do read quite a bit of it it's older. So anything by J. Krishnamurti, Anthony DeMello, or Kapil Gupta, those are on rotation for me. I heard Naval Ravikant say that instead of trying to read all the books, I'd rather just read the hundred best books over and over and over. That's how I feel with DeMello in particular. Kapil and and uh, Jay Krishnamurti are really good too. So every morning I'm reading something from one of those one of those three. I'll throw one in there. Do it. Uh, Robert Greene, the the newest one he has, The Daily Laws, is really good. For those that are familiar, he wrote The 48 Laws of Power is probably the one he's best known for. But I think uh, this one works really well, even for people that are kind of on the fence on that one, because it's all bite-sized, right? Yeah. It's, it's just daily meditations, basically, on on good practices in life. If uh, you want to get him on the podcast, let's reach out to him. Yeah. Ryan Holiday, who we've had on before, yeah. was uh, was his assistant, his okay. research assistant. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Ryan Holiday wrote The Ego is the Enemy mm-hmm. and uh, The Daily Stoic and and some other things as well. But um, yeah, those are my three favorite nonfiction authors. And I don't even think I read much other nonfiction other than guests that we have on the podcast. I'll often read their books or, or read a good chunk of their book, at least. Liv has a question for us. How do you both plan to navigate the ever-growing social platforms in the future? With new apps constantly being added and people expecting everyone to jump in, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the list is ever-growing. It is ever-growing. Do you know that there are currently 103 social media platforms with more than a million users? And it's funny because you mentioned these four because these are the four most popular. And these are the four that we feel compelled to go after, right? But you don't feel compelled to, to go after the 99 others, right? You don't even know about yuck, them. Yuck. <laughs> yeah. Is that still is that still a thing? Are it they might still, be. I, don't, I think I, don't I think they might have sold their technology. Oh, yeah. But Yik Yak was fast a fascinating experiment. Yeah. We actually used it back in 2013 for a bit in Missoula. So Yik Yak was this social media service that basically gave you a ton of followers all at once because you could communicate. It was like if you mix Twitter with Craigslist, you kind of got <laughs> Yik Yak because it was local only. You, you guys probably don't remember this, right? Oh no, we had it at college. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. It- Cause problems. Yeah, call, yeah. They had to they yeah. had to do geofencing around mm-hmm. it at some points because like high schools were doing like bullying, like people were bullying mm-hmm. each other it's and stuff. Terrible. Yeah. Well, it the intention I think was great, and I think the technology was probably turned into something. And here's the truth about social media: if it adds value to your life more than it drains, then it's probably a net positive for you. The only way that you can tell. Whether or not that's true, though, is to eliminate it for a period of time. Uh, to the short answer, the rapid fire answer to this question, Liv, is I don't have social media on my phone. That's it. Linda has a question for us. 
What is your go-to song or music that inspires you and cheers you on difficult days? I um I do playlists of what well, depend I I set the I have three different playlists I use all the time. I use Pandora still because they have the best sort of algorithm. And uh so I have a morning playlist which is Zen Garden on Pandora on evenings I'll put on the Aquilo playlist. It's like a ethereal singer-songwriter. And then um, I have a bedroom playlist as well, or, or it's not even playlists, they're um, channels, stations on, on Pandora. And the bedroom is just uh, Division R&B group, and they make some of the best R&B music there is. So it's, it's perfectly appropriate for the bedroom. Irene has a question. What made you start doing the live streams? Uh, patrons, they, we, we sent out something and asked, hey, do you want of these things we might do in the future. Cause I was just asking, how do we add value to our audience? Well, let's reach out to them. Here are some options. So we're not going to tell you to recommend something necessarily. You don't may not know what you want, but here are four things that we're considering and live stream rose to the top. And so that's why we're doing the live streams for now. Kim has a question for us. What's your dream meal? I eat it once a week. And so, um, my wife and I go to this restaurant called Squirrel. It's in uh, like East Hollywood, Silver Lake area. It's kind of this hole in the wall place, but it's, I have the same thing every single time. The crispy rice bowl, a uh, crispy disco, they call it, the version that I get. And it is unbelievable. With jam? Uh, oh, no, I don't sorry. get their jam. Although they're known for their jam. Yeah, they're known for now they're known for another reason. <laughs> yeah, Isn't it sad? I, here's why I never recommend anything, by the way. This is, you're actually bringing up a great point, Sean. The main reason I never recommend anything is because as soon as you recommend something, now you're beholden to something that they do. So here, here's mm-hmm. an example. Squirrel, a couple of years ago, one of their employees outed them because there was mold in their jam. Now here's, I was talking to my wife about this, who used to do food safety for the university. So she was their health inspector at the university. Mm. And she said, yeah, there's no way you could get by with this. But if you were making your jam at home like this, that's exactly how you would do it. You would scrape the mold off the top, and and that's just the way that people do it. In fact, mm-hmm. mold is a part of you know the the food process in in many different ways. I mean, blue cheese is essentially mold. Dry aged meats, mold. you're just cutting off the mm-hmm. mold, right? And and yet they were exposed, and they handled it really, really well. They have not fully bounced back because they used to. I mean, they're a hole in the wall on a street that is packed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they used to have a line around the block. Yeah. Um, and I go there now, and they'll still have a line, but it's not like what it was. And the other restaurant, Bel Campo, which is my favorite, they got caught up in mm. a, another scandal. In fact, during COVID. The, the scandal happened where they were selling meats in a way that uh, they were mislabeling some meats mm. in one of their stores. It just happened to be one of their locations, but it ruined their whole business. There was, was, it, a, was that the one here? No, Santa Monica. Santa Monica. Okay. And so one, one manager basically ruined the whole company, right? Their business reduced by 70%. Thankfully, y'all got to experience it before yeah. it, it went, went uh, to the wayside, but... um. That's why I don't recommend anything. But yeah, I eat my dream meal every week. Uh, my dream meal always involves my wife, though. Martin has a question for us. I've listened to some of the music slash song recommendations you guys have made and really enjoyed them. 
Have you made a playlist with those songs? Yeah, Jessica made a playlist for us. So you can just go to Spotify and type in The Minimalists. You can see some of our tour playlists because each tour stop we play, a, we have a playlist together. So you can see the one we have for the Love People Use Things tour right now, the Less Is Now tour. They're slightly different, but also we have the Added Value playlist up there as well. And Sean can perhaps put a link to those, I think, in, in the show notes. And... um your yearly list too, right? You'll be updating that oh, soon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll already be out there. So go to theminimalists.com slash sound. You can find all of my favorite albums since 2011 over there. We have another question here from Serge. What do you think now of one of your guests, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., with mm. all his association with the far right? I think the... I think the sides are the problem. Far right, far left. Now, unfortunately, what happens here is, it, by the way, this is we we do this to otherize someone so we can dismiss them. We'll say someone. We'll let, we'll let's say someone's to the right or the left. Now, far right. Now, what does that make you think of? Well, that person must be a Nazi or something. I don't know someone more liberal than Robert F. Kennedy Jr. In some respects, with respect to the environment. He's literally the most liberal person I've ever met. And how is that true? Not through his thoughts. Yeah, there are people who will probably think more liberally than him. But what he has done for the environment and suing the EPA mm -hmm. and all these other organizations who are polluting, he is. And that's why we had him on the podcast. We did an episode about environmental minimalism. And so uh, we brought him on the podcast to talk about that. Why? Because he's an expert. He's an environmental lawyer. Now, if he's being lumped into particular groups, that's nothing. To, I don't care about that. I don't care who you voted for in the last election. Or I'm going to just tell this for the, to the patrons. Don't don't spread this information. But at our Washington D.C. event that's coming up, actually, by the time this comes out, it'll already have happened. Um, but if you're watching on the live stream, it's coming up soon. We're going to have T.K. Coleman and Ken Coleman both at that event. So it'll be me and Ryan and T.K. Coleman and Ken Coleman, the Coleman brothers, uh, <laughs> up on stage. Brothers from other mothers. Yes, indeed. <laughs> now, here's the thing. All four of us voted differently in the last election. And yet there are four of, well, three of my favorite people. I might guess I'm one of my favorite people, too. And I could care less who they voted for because I know them. I know their values and I don't want to otherize them. I want to bring them in. What we do with questions like this is we separate them and it removes our compassion that we can have for another human being. And so by saying, oh, this person's associated with the far right or the far left, they're part of this group that I dislike. He's not even part of that group, but we love to lump people in so I can now dismiss them. And I can say, well, they're worse than me, or I'm better than them. I'm going to inadvertently place myself on a pedestal. And whenever I do that, I've lost my compassion completely. Anita has a question for us. Canyon City and Andrew Bell were my number one and number three on Spotify for 2021. A big thanks to you, The Minimalists. Do you know of any other musicians that I might enjoy listening to? Well, Sean just mentioned theminimalists.com slash sound. That's my favorite albums of each year. Yeah, recently, there are a few albums that really stood out. Uh, Tory Lanes, which I mentioned on the Minimal episode, is my added value this week. Also, Sam Outlaw, my other added value this week. Both of those albums are, I think, classic albums, even though they just came out. 
So I would start there. If you're a friend of, or if you're a fan of Canyon City and Andrew Bell, Ken Yates, who is who is opening up a few of our shows on the Love People Use Things tour, his last album, which is called Quiet Talkers, is a quiet masterpiece. It is so so good. So I would start there. Yaman has a question for us. JFM, I may or may not have picked up on you enjoying lyrical miracle rapidy rap stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that you follow Budden on social media. Are uh-huh. you a fan of his music as well? If so, are you big on Slaughterhouse? And are you into rap battles at all? Oh, totally. Yeah. So um, I, I, Joe Budden, I, I could never really get into to Joe's music. It's probably he would win the award for most poorly mixed albums of all time. I mean, they're so poorly mixed. It just gets in the way of the music. And it's not even endearing in the lo-fi sort of way. Like, if you go back and listen to XXX Tentacion's first album where it's lo-fi, but, like, there's an endearing quality to it. No. Joe Budden's, like, he's super talented, but I couldn't really get into the... Um, and same, same, I mean, Slaughterhouse is fine. I'm, it's not really my cup of tea. Lately, I've been much more on sort of the way the music makes me feel. But yeah, in my 20s and even in my early 30s, I was really into lyrics, like what people said and how they moved words. Because I'm a writer. I really appreciate the way people manipulate the language and use it to uh, fold into each other. It's involuted and it can be really beautiful. As far as rap battles, yeah. Pat Stay is like a, a genius with... Uh, he's he's a stand-up comedian who happens to be really, really talented with words. So he's my favorite. Aubrey has a question for us. How do you like the decision of getting texts from all of us? <laughs> It'd be miserable if I had to respond to everyone or if I felt compelled to. I think the fact that we get so many texts, I don't feel compelled, but we do respond to a lot of people between me and Ryan. We, um, we'll respond to as many people as we can. It may not be on a quick timeline. Sometimes if I feel like it, I'll just sit down. If I got extra time, my wife's out of town, I'll sit down on Saturday and just respond to text for five hours. No no good deed, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I don't feel, it could become a type of prison, but it's a way to communicate and I've enjoyed it so far. And uh, if that ever changes, then I'm willing to walk away from that as well. We have another question here. Um, let's see, Brody. Do you think you'll ever get to tour in Australia? I hope to get back to Australia. We've done two tours in Australia so far. We've we've done all the, the big cities over there, including Perth. I know no one ever makes it out there to Perth, but we have twice. In fact, we ended our big 100-city tour in Perth. We had two events in Perth in 2014 to end the year. Here's a story for you. Ryan ate some sushi the day we were leaving, got food poisoning. We had 54-hour flight because we had to stop over in Abu Dhabi and we had to wait there for a while. And then we had a nine-hour layover in Seattle and uh, New York before that. And so finally made it back to Missoula. But he had food poisoning that entire plane ride. He was running back to the bathroom. And we, of course, we were in economy. We could barely afford to fly back uh, at the time. And so... Yeah, we've been to Australia twice. We did a big tour there in 20... It ended our, our Less Is Now tour in 2018. We did the whole Less Is Now tour in 2017. We we finished in Australia in early 2018. Hope to get back, but man, with what's going on over there right now, I, it might take a while before we are 
anyone is allowed back in the country. I don't know about the restrictions, but I certainly don't want to get stuck anywhere. Uh, a few months ago, our publisher asked us, asked us if we'd be willing to do a tour over there. Our book publisher, Hachette. We said, yeah, certainly. Well, what, what are the details? They said, well, you'd have to quarantine for 14. Uh, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to hang out in a hotel for 14 days in order to go over there and, and tour. It's just, it, it doesn't make sense. It's not feasible. I, I couldn't do that to my family, to our business, to my own sanity being in a hotel room for 14 days just doesn't, doesn't feel right. You know, a little funny side note I saw. Um, somebody posted a meme and made me laugh as a, as a responsible gun, responsible gun owner. It said, um, what's happening in Australia, uh, is a perfect example that gun control operates exactly how it's supposed to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there are more dynamics to it than that. Yeah. They're uh, oversimplifying for the sake of comedy for humor, but, yeah, um, yeah I mean, but that's it, what makes comedy funny, right? Mm-hmm. If we, if we try to take it literally, if anyone gets upset at that, then it, the, then they, they strip the, um, the essence of what you're trying to yeah, say. Yeah, the there. implication being for us, you know, for because it was being passed around probably primarily in the United States is that we, our condition does not look like Australia's condition because we have the Second Amendment. So I don't know. It was, it was just a funny little thing. Could be true. Now, I hope to get back to, to Australia. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I, love. I mean, Australia, that was fantastic. What a great experience. I got to tell you, it's probably my favorite country outside of the United States. And, uh, and, and so the ones I've, of the ones we visited, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I haven't been to, I haven't been to something like 185 countries or mm. may, well, there's 193 countries in the world. So there's probably 180 mm. I haven't been to, but of the ones I've been to, I, um, yeah, I really liked Australia. I thought, um, oh, agreed. yeah, yeah. And mm. so I definitely want to get back. Gabriella has a question for us. How do you organize your day time management wise? And are there any organizing tools you use to organize your notes and schedules? No, um, I don't. I mean, the best way to organize is to get rid of most of your stuff, right? The best way to organize your time is to get rid of most of your obligations. And then it's much, much easier to fit in the things that you find to be meaningful. I do use Apple Notes for ideas that I jot down, essay ideas, things that I want to talk to you all about. In fact, I got a a note called Joy Committee. That's what we call the little team meetings that we'll have in between podcasts. We call it a Joy Committee. That was a... um, a little anecdote I got from someone we were interviewing during the uh, the office manager hiring. Uh, we didn't end up hiring her, but she was uh, she had this great idea that for for a joy committee um, someone else had on on her team, and um, I like that because it actually makes me have virtually no meetings because meetings don't tend to bring me joy, and so I want to have I'd rather have a joy committee where we spend five ten minutes and we can we get past that so we can actually go on to do something that is a bit more joyous. I think you and I especially got cured of meetings in our corporate days when we would have meetings about the meetings. Yeah, the pre-meeting meeting. I couldn't tell you how many times like oh my, my boss would want to be prepped about the meeting, so I'd have to have a pre-meeting meeting with him <laughs> so that he knew how to talk in the meeting he was getting ready to go into. And occasionally we'd even have a post-meeting meeting. <laughs> oh, Well, give me that gun, Sean. (laughs) Amanda has a question for us. What does Ryan do that's most annoying to Joshua and vice versa? Oh, I wish he was here to answer this right now. 
I mean, he knows what mine is. Uh, he, he, I actually have two things. So one is he picks his nails like crazy. Like he can't stop touch. What next? I mean, you see him. He's always doing. He's just touching his nails all the time, and that's my problem. It's not his. It him. I. It wouldn't drive me crazy if I weren't in the room, and so it's not his problem to fix. It's my problem to fix. And the other thing is Sean and I were just talking about this yesterday. Ryan, because he's so empathetic, he has this accidental habit of uh, doing what we call the Jeb Bush. <laughs> the uh, yeah. we're at a live event, like, and someone's timid or whatever. Uh, he he'll say, "Ah, oh, it's okay. You can clap," and it comes off like there's that that moment that ruined Jeb Bush's political career, where he he said some supposedly profound thing and he he told the audience please clap when they didn't and <laughs> it just made him look so weak now it doesn't uh, do it with ryan but on recordings in particular it can come off as as though he's seeking or asking for applause but really what he's doing when you see it in the room because you see some people they start doing this but then they feel timid and he's like trying to encourage them like it's okay to react however you want to react you don't have to feel timid is what he's saying but it can come off in a different way yeah well it and the Jeb Bush thing you and I were talking about, that's what ruined it for us, right? It, they, that might not be the case had it not been for that. And we're like, yeah. no, no, don't, don't do that. I think that's right. Yeah, I think, I think it's Jeb Bush's fault that that is ruined for me. <laughs> Marie has a question for us. Do you have a new book or documentary project that you're working on right now? Uh, I don't have a new book. I have a few ideas for a new book. Um, and I write pretty much every day. So something may eventually happen, but between everything that remains and love people use things, there were four different books that I started that never saw the light of day. So I don't like to talk about the things until they're next to done. Matthew has a question for us. How do you deal with frustration when other people's hoarding is made to be your problem? For example, helping someone move or carrying someone's luggage for them because it's too heavy and they overpacked. Now, that's April's question, but uh, I'll go ahead and answer April's question now. So um, frustration with other people's hoarding. So helping someone move. I don't help people move. Um, if someone really needed help, I'd hire movers for them at this point. <laughs> I, I will tell you, Ryan and I, we have this running joke of Josh and Ryan move heavy stuff season 18 or whatever we're on right now. But uh, even then, like Ryan knows he wouldn't, I wouldn't ask him to help me move to a new apartment. He wouldn't ask me either. Right. And so, well, why is that? Cause I would just say no to it. And if he truly needed help, I, okay, I guess I can help with some movers or whatever, but carrying someone else's luggage, think about that metaphorically for a second. Someone else is asking you to carry their baggage for you. Now you can have compassion for them and say, look, the reason they have so much baggage is they're not ready to let go of it. And it doesn't mean you have to judge them or, or, or talk about them poorly. You don't have to even confront them about it. But if you're carrying their baggage for them, do you think they're ever going to want to let it go? How about Matthew's question? Do you have a favorite podcast guest from 2021? Ooh, almost always TK Coleman. Peter Rollins is up there as well. Now, what about y'all? Did you, since you've been here in August, yeah, if you had a, a favorite guest so far, Amanda Montel was great. Anyone really stand out to y'all? 
I'm going to have to think for a moment. There were a lot of really good ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always like, um, like you say, <laughs> I almost hit, hate to uh, uh, pick favorites because then I don't want the, the other guests that are listening to the podcast to say, why wasn't I mentioned? <laughs> I wasn't mentioned as a favorite. Yeah. Um, you weren't mentioned as a favorite just because I forgot in the moment to mention you. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, there's right? a dozen um, people yeah, that I'll, so many I'll remember that after are, the podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I, I'd go with those two that you mentioned. And it's some of those because they're so recent, right? Amanda and uh, and Peter and, and TK. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ken Coleman is always a, a mm-hmm. fan favorite when he talks about that stuff. We had Ryan's wife on, Mariah. Mel Robbins, mm-hmm. a lot of people really dug that. Lisa Lampanelli, I think she's probably uh, Ryan's yeah, favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Andrew Bell was was great. Just be able to get him on. Erwin Raphael McManus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I always like Erwin. Mm-hmm. We've done several with him. Kate Bowler. Uh, Lori Gottlieb. T.K. Coleman. Oh, this was good. I almost forgot about this episode. Remember we did the fake famous episode 295? Mm, yep. Nick Bolton and Chris Bailey. I want to get Chris back on. He and I text from time to time, but mm. he's so sort of like absent-minded. And, uh, mm. But that's, that's part of his charm. He's amazing. My wife's been on a few times. Um, so, of course, I can't, I can't say, I can't, I can't not say her. Mm. We had Jack Conti, uh, CEO of Patreon, on the podcast. Uh, Jeanette McCurdy, we had her at, I think, the top of the year. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. how could I forget about Jamie Wheel? Episode 285, we got to get him back on the podcast. Yeah. Probably the most brilliant podcast guest we've we've ever had. What do, you, what do you think? I see Danny up here stretching. Danny, who you got? I think my favorite was Ian Cron. Ian Cron. Oh, yeah. 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 Not only just him being here, but the fact that we added... We had the studio audience. Studio audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know, but also he was able, I feel like he was able to, to wrangle you guys and kind of give you mm. guys some good banter and mess with you guys. Uh, wait till mm. uh, you hear the Dallas up episode we did with him. He mm. really, um, so we did, uh, we, we did a live event with him in Dallas. I think it'll be out in March, but it's, I mean, he really got to the heart in front of the, mm. a crowd of hundreds of people. Mm. He like, called us out in the most beautiful way it was great it was yeah, really really it, good it's worth it too um for those that are that uh, enjoyed ian to go back and check out the episode you guys did on his podcast yeah, yeah it's called typology yeah yeah i've never seen ryan cry in an interview mm-hmm. and i've never seen him cry that quickly either it was oh and he pegged remember right in the middle of that he uh pegged jordan yeah the guy Whoa, like midway saw, right you have the video of that <laughs> <laughs> it sounded very inappropriate, Sean. Oh. <laughs> but no, it, Every, it, everything we do is vaguely inappropriate. <laughs> this is why I didn't talk. <laughs> this, this is why we're never on mic. <laughs> oh, right is, here. Right? Yeah, Jordan, he's the uh, the five of the group. And uh, mm-hmm. we actually brought him on stage in Dallas. And it, Ian's like, he'll never want to come on stage as a five. And, and Jordan is I like... proved him wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But then he uh, proved himself right in so many ways when he, when he described you on stage. Oh, yeah. Oof. That was that was great. So you can check that out. Coming soon for our true fans, VIPs. That's the the Dallas event. One of my favorites ever. I would say that my favorite guest is me on this episode. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, of course you would. <laughs> Are you sure not, you're not a three then? Um, all right. Uh, we have a question here from Bowen. 
Do you keep your notebooks that you've used when going on walks? Do you digitize them? I was talking to Danny during the break between the minimal and the maximal. Um, and he was talking about he has some books that he wants to digitize. And yeah, I think that's one way to do it. You just digit, you know, $1scan.com. You can digitize your books. They get rid of them for you. You can read them on an e-reader or whatever. But I don't do notebooks. I've just, I've tried in the past. It's a mimetic belief that you need a notebook for me. Now, I find they're so helpful for some people. People get up and journal every morning. I mean, Sean's writing in a notebook right now, right? I just don't do notebooks. I do loose leaf paper if I need it. And when I'm done with it, I either take a photo of it and have it on my Apple Notes, or I just shred it. I shred a lot of things where I'm like, yeah, it's gone now. And that's totally fine. I don't keep things around for posterity. I don't have all the first drafts, the second draft, the third draft of love people use things. Even though I've printed all, I printed all those out and made all kinds of notes and stuff in the margin. When I'm done with it, I'm done with it. And I want it gone. I want to let go. And so I don't do notebooks because missing out is letting go in advance. Ooh, tweet that podcast, Sean. Um, and so do I digitize them? No, I don't have anything to digitize there. It's already digitized. I use Apple Notes regularly, and I often share Apple Notes with other members of the team. A couple more questions here. Here's one from Anita. Can we get an update on the grounding? I am curious because I live with chronic pain. Oh, man, me too. But what's fascinating is... Anita, how, why, why haven't you tried it yet? It's free. We've talked about this in the podcast. So you want me to give you an update on grounding. Hopefully you're already doing it. If not, what is stopping you? I mean, yes, you can buy. I'm standing on a grounding mat right now. That's not free. Uh, actually, I'll hold it up here. Well, depending on where she lives, Josh, it might be the permafrost that's keeping her from going on <laughs> grounding. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> But here's uh, the grounding mat that I'm standing on right now. I have a grounding pad on my bed. They're both from Ultimate Longevity. They are not a sponsor. But um, yeah, we're going to try and get Clint Ober on the podcast. He founded that company. But just check out his book, Earthing. The book is called Earthing. has all the studies and the science behind grounding. The problem is we lost touch with the earth in 1960 when we invented rubber sole shoes and we spend most of our lives not grounded and it causes tremendous inflammation in our bodies and it's impossible to feel pain without so if you get rid of the inflammation by grounding you remove that chronic pain it's literally that simple you'll feel a change within 24 hours within 10 weeks it will change your life and even if you're not i'm not recommending it but i will tell you empirically that if you are not in chronic pain, you don't have all kinds of problems or whatever. It doesn't matter. My wife is a paragon of health. When we started sleeping on a grounding pad, her sleep improved dramatically. She tracks her sleep on an aura ring. And so you could even quantify it, but qualitatively her sleep was better. And so even someone like her improved her sleep from grounding at night. Kim has one last question for us. What movie made you laugh the most? Interested to hear if y'all have anything there, if there's a movie. I can think of a few times where I have laughed hysterically, where I couldn't stop laughing. Uh, one is from a movie. 
It was Super Troopers. I was in my early 20s. <laughs> Can't go wrong with Super Troopers. And, what's that? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. No, it was, uh, I don't want a large Farva. I don't know why that got me. Uh, and the thing is, like, if I went back and watched it now, I don't think I would laugh the same mm -hmm. way. And I think that's the, as, as you, as you change whatever is situational in that moment, might be hilarious and it may barely be funny at all a year from now, a decade from now or whatever. There was another time I was at the comedy store and Theo Vaughn was on stage and he had this joke about Falcons and I think it was a throwaway joke. I don't think he has ever used it in anything else, but I laughed so hard that my ribs, I felt like they were broken. I couldn't breathe. I started to like get worried that I wasn't going to live because I, I, I had stopped breathing. But I'll yeah, tell you, the times I laugh the most um, are when I'm with Ryan. Uh, he is, he and I, when we're together, we swear we're the two funniest people on the planet. Now, the weird thing about it is like that humor sometimes comes out on the podcast, but I don't think it would be funny to anyone else. I, I mean, in fact, when we're, it's, we're around our wives, like me and Bex and Ryan and Mariah, they just kind of look at each other like, what the hell are these guys giggling <laughs> about? But we can't stop laughing. We're around each other. Yeah. Anybody so. else for, I, I mean, for, for films, I, they yeah. weren't specific to, they weren't specific to something yeah, new, any movie. right? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I mean, for me, every time, if I want to get a really good, Jordan probably knows where I'm going with this. If I want to get a really good laugh, there's two go-tos. Wait. That brothers? <laughs> that, that, you know what? Uh, you know what? For it, it, they're, they're, I consider like Will Ferrell and John C. Riley like the modern day Peter Sellers. They have, it's just absurdity. <laughs> it's just absurd. Yeah. You know, it's completely absurd. And that's what's so funny about it is so out there. Um, now for me, it's always been, uh, my go-to has always been, uh, Mel Brooks, especially, uh, mm. Blazing Saddles oh, yeah. and Young Blazing Frankenstein, Saddles. Young <laughs> Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles and Blazing Saddles is one. I mean, right. It's, uh, um, some of the comedies for its time, right. Even, um, it, like they said, that never, you'd never see that get released today. <laughs> yeah. It's um, funny you say that, Sean, those were the two in my head was between Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. And I was like, oh, I don't know which one mm -hmm. I like more. And I was like, wait, what's Sean going mean, to say? I mean, that's, well, that's, that's peak Mel Brooks for me. I mean, yeah, those, are, those were the, you know, peak of his career. What about these two? I'll be that guy. The water boy. <laughs> you know, Adam Sandler's another one. Absurdity. That, absurd Sean, humor. That's, that's something that, they, if it came out today, it wouldn't come out today. Yeah. Right? But that movie. Yeah. Me and mm -hmm. my buddy, a AV, if we watch that movie, I mean, we're, it's, yeah, that one's always, that's the go-to if I'm feeling down. The water. And and it'll, yeah. still, it'll still take you there. Mm -hmm. today. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what's funny. Like, so to me, and I differ from most people on this, I think stand-up comedy now is pretty cringe. Like, I, I won't mm. go watch it because mm. I, I never felt that way. I used to think it was hilarious. But then I, I realized how disingenuous stand-up comedy actually is. It's some guy, usually guy or gal, who are rehearsing extemporaneousness. Because they're, they're trying to come off as though it's extemporaneous. Like, oh, I, I, like I'm coming up with this on the spot. Mm -hmm. They're never coming up with it on the spot. Mm -hmm. It's rehearsed, and it's lines. They're doing the same thing over and over and over, which is fine if you're giving a speech, a TED mm -hmm. Talk. But I, the comedy I like, and that's why I think the Theo Vaughn thing was so funny to me. I, 
he got up on stage and he's like, I just got an app. It tells me every time a falcon dies. <laughs> there it is. Minus one falcon. Yeah. <laughs> and just the way he said it in that Louisiana draw, it, I lost. I couldn't, but like, you could tell, like, he just made that up on the spot. It was not a, he didn't have a, and he went into a regular set after that and it was plenty funny, but. I, I found that the things that used to I used to laugh at, I don't laugh at the same way. I laugh at new things. I laugh at real, real absurd things, uh, and and so yeah, I'm into to, I just the anything that is the most absurd that doesn't make any sense at all. Those tend to to really really make me laugh. Jordan, did you have one you want to put in there since? Everyone else got a chance to throw a yeah. film in there that just, I think, and I don't know if that's where this where the impetus of that question was. Um, from who, who was it? Uh, Kim. From Kim. What movie made you laugh? Yeah, I think it's probably just uh, people need comedy right now, right? With the environment uh, that we're currently in. People yeah. just need a release, you know, so a release valve. So what's your release valve, Jordan? Well, most recently uh, was actually Deadpool 2. Really? Mm. Both of the Deadpools are really good. That's a couple Uh, years old now, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, that's like I literally watched it the other night. But you know, you can watch just about any Ryan Reynolds movie, though, and you're going to get the same. But for some reason, that one I was Deadpool two busting up laughing. You have to be in the right right headspace, you know? Yeah, that's it's just hilarious how meta that is. I like meta humor. Yeah, you know. I've never gotten into the Deadpool. No? I've I've seen him a dozen times on airplanes at the seat next to me. <laughs> yeah, I just I've tried to watch it. it just it, it seemed fine, but it was not not really just wasn't my your jam. Thing. And I think that's what's why, why I like conversations like this because something that doesn't resonate with me at all can be so meaningful mm. and and elicit so much joy and ecstatic pleasure in the moment. You know, ecstatic. I, I was uh, heard Rob Bell talk about this recently. So the it just means like ecstasis, ecstatic, to be out of oneself. Mm. And isn't that what great laughter does? It feels as though you you're almost having an out of body experience. It's uncontrollable. It's almost as though it's happening outside of me, and it's resonating all the way in. Yeah, and you feel refreshed by it. Yeah. Or at least I do, right? It feels like that release. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Great. It's funny. I, w- I went rolfing yesterday. <laughs> You're talking. So it's my second rolfing so you, session. So for those that aren't familiar, uh huh. What is is rolfing? So exactly. most people have heard of deep tissue massage. Obviously, right? It's just when people go, they go and they get real, real deep tissue. Rolfing is the, an extreme version of that. Okay. So you can look it up. So R-O- this is like the Russians when they get on top of you, right? That big Russian dude and crush the crap out of you. Type the of. guy I go to is pretty big and he <laughs> has the strongest hands I've ever. Uh, but like, so Rolfing, R-O-L-F-I-N-G. Okay. Um, it is it is an art, but it's, um, man, I'll tell you. Uh, so the first, the first time I went, it was like the full body sort of introduction. It's a 10, you go through 10 sessions of it. You have to wait a week or two before your next session. And you'll see why in a second. Is this one of those things too, where they encourage you like afterwards to like drink lots of water because I released a bunch of toxins out of your... Like yes, but they're and... really breaking up the fascia in a way. Like if you saw my legs right now, they're bruised like crazy. <sighs> so here's what I'll tell you. They just use hands though with this or do they use other things? He will to use do it? his elbow from time to time, but his okay. gloves. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, that's what I was saying. They don't use any accoutrements, right? It's just 
Yeah, they don't have to. Um, it's, he he doesn't. <laughs> but like he sounds like bondage. So <laughs> yesterday when I was there, like I I had to. I'm doing. I'm closing my eyes, holding my head. Like I'm screaming <laughs> at one point, literally screaming. And I looked down, like because I want to see where he was putting his elbow, and it was just his thumb. He had. That's Ooh. how strong he was. Do they have a, st- a safe word? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. What is your safety? My safety screaming and it didn't stop. <laughs> Please stop. Uh, but literally, I even told him, I said, my safe word is stop. He's like, yeah, that's a good one. Um, but uh, because I'm not into like telling him no and then he keeps going. But uh, that, that's a different sort of thing. But the, do you guys remember that scene in Fight Club where... Uh, the, You're not supposed to talk about it. <laughs> uh, the narrator is... Um, uh, Tyler Durden is pouring the chemical on the narrator's hand and he makes him sit there yeah, like why isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, and he makes him tolerate it. Mm. I, I had that in my mind because there was a moment where I just had to like, that's what's happening in my leg right now. I'll tell you this. It's the most pain I've ever experienced in my life. And I asked for it and and paid for it. Yes. <laughs> afterward, not only did I feel euphoric, but um, he, you know, I clearly I have some 40 years of, of build up. He was going at my IT band. And so the second session is your feet and your uh, calves. Oh my God. They're all bruised up right now. So uh, talk about added value. I get tremendous value from this. I would not recommend it to anyone. And here's the thing. Here's the weird thing about it. I have an extremely high pain tolerance, like more than probably anyone I know. And yet even there in that chair, I'm like, I'm like, th- like my body, I could tell at one point was like trying to wiggle out of the room. My, I, I couldn't control anymore. Like I'm trying to get out of the room. It was that painful. It was, I mean, mm. if he worked for the CIA, he'd get all the answers. <laughs> I was Check ready to confess pass. right there. I right. confessed to JFK's <laughs> shooting and um, Reagan and I the killed Lincoln. Uh, the fact that you're the <laughs> fact that you're one of the lizard people. Yeah, I, all of it. It's yeah. all true. So they call it rolfing because you you have to rolf. At the end of it, right? <laughs> was it rolling on the floor laughing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was more like rolling on the floor crying. <laughs> I want to end this maximal episode. It's a long one today. Thanks for being with us, folks. I want to end it with two things. One is we have one more question from Noel. If you want to read that from the maximal segment, then we'll play you out with a Tory Lane song for one of my favorite albums of uh, 2021. How do I determine the appropriate time to let go of a paper document? Well, the appropriate time. Oh, here's a better way to think about it. When would now be an appropriate time? And I think that'll, uh, that'll answer the question for you. Let's listen to Tory Lanez. Unless you're watching the video version, then you can click right here. And you can watch a video for Enchanted Waterfall. But if you're listening to the audio version... Then enjoy Enchanted Waterfall from Tory Lanez. This is off his new 80s sounding album, which is called Alone at Prom. All right, y'all. Love people and use things. We'll see you soon. <laughs>